probably kind of wonder when we take a look at the fruit of the Spirit this week, I've titled it Gentleness, why it is we're in John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. When you read through this story, it's an ugly story. It's a rough story. It has a lot of things in it, but it doesn't seem like it has anything gentle about it. But we'll unpack that as we go along, because you're right on the surface. But there's a lot of things that we can learn here. Because gentleness oftentimes is seen as what? It's an action, isn't it? Gentleness is an action. It's a verb. I'm going to be gentle with this newborn baby because I don't want to drop the poor child on its head, you know, and, and have kinds of issues. Or this little puppy or my grandmother's china that she brings out just, just for Thanksgiving because last year I dropped the gravy boat and she still won't talk to me. You know, that, that's gentleness. But the reality is, is gentleness is far more than that when we really take a look at it and we think about it. Gentleness is actually seen in how it is we respond how we respond to people, depending on how they are acting towards us. How it is we respond in situations we find ourselves in. The circumstances we might be struggling with that we find ourselves trying to figure out how do we get out of this when we're asking at the same time, how in God's name did I get into this? In other words, gentleness really, if we are doing it right, much like all of the fruit of the Spirit, is actually who we are as much as it is what we do. And that we're going to kind of unpack today because when we look through the Gospels, we find over and over again when we look at this Jesus, this carpenter from Nazareth, the stories that he does that we see here that are dealing with different people and circumstances always have something going on in the midst of what we see real easily on the surface. How he handles different people and circumstances is so important for us to understand if we want to grow in our walk with Christ. How it is he manages life. If we want to mature in the way in which we handle things, in the way in which we handle people. Are we just going to get angry and bail? Are we going to get frustrated because we don't get our way or we don't like our situation and we're going to try and find another place that's comfortable? Or somebody has said something that is less than kind to us. Are we going to be unkind back? Because sometimes if we aren't careful in our efforts to be truthful even in our lives and in our walk and, and to be, quotes, loving, you know, that's how we have always liked to do things. We, we forget to temper ourselves with gentleness. We forget that it, a soft answer turns away wrath. A gentle answer is something sometimes that somebody may need. You see, there are times when simple matter-of-fact statements are made and they ought to be made. But if we take time to carefully dig into the Gospels and we see this Jesus and how it is he handles things and we take a careful reading of it, don't go there thinking we already know everything, but to ask the Holy Spirit, show me what's going on here. What we find is we find that Jesus reserved those very hard truth statements more often than not for those people who already should have known better. For those who already should have known better. But for those who didn't know better, he was far too kind and far too gentle for those who knew better. In fact, it made them mad that he didn't handle people the way in which he would want. You see, gentleness is is not a weakness, as some would see. And that's the problem, I think, that we tend to have. Gentleness is not a weakness. It's not compromise. It's not any of those things. In its purest form, gentleness itself is always filtered through the grace 
in the goodness of God in every situation that we find ourselves in and every person that we're trying to deal with. It is, as we're going to learn today, and I've gone over this before because these are three things that I pull out of this text. So if you've already heard this, you're going to learn it again. It's good. We all need to learn it again. If you've never heard it, we'll learn it for the first time. The first thing here that we see is that we need to learn the backstory. If we ever want to operate correctly, we need to learn the backstory because, you know, everybody has one, including this woman in this story, including the crowd that's accusing her as well, for that matter. The second thing we have to do is that we have to learn to stay above the chaos. We tend not to operate in any kind of good way, whether it be gentle or kind, when we get down in the chaos, do we? No, we we allow the circumstances and the situation to kind of drive us along and it never ends well. You have to stay above the noise. That's why it's good to get silent and just rest before the Lord and hear what he has to say. And then the third thing is, is we need to learn to exercise grace and truth. Grace and truth is so important in such a way that people see God and his goodness in the things that we do and in the things that we say. See, Jesus maps all of these out. And we have an incident this morning that seems to me, when you dig into it, and I've taught from this many times, and everybody always wants to know why the brackets are there, and everybody panics and whatnot. Well, it doesn't belong there, or it does belong there. Suffice it to say, most of the scribes have come to the conclusion that it either belongs somewhere in John or it belongs somewhere in Luke. There's a good chance that Luke might have written this, and John took it because it fit right here. doesn't matter. They know that it is something that either John or Luke wrote for certain. And that it is something that belongs here. But when you come to this particular incident, to me it seems that it leaves us with as many questions almost if we we don't really slow down as it does answers. You go through this story real quickly and you walk away asking yourself a lot more things perhaps than when you started. We come upon this scene here in John's gospel where Jesus is teaching in the temple. It says, early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. That in and of itself isn't a good thing if you've got a fat head, which the scribes and the Pharisees tended to have. And in the midst of what I would assume would be a quiet morning teaching, I'm sure it wasn't real loud at that particular moment in time, for everyone gathered around, sitting somewhere in the temple, Jesus was quietly teaching them. All of a sudden, we have this big commotion going on, a whole ruckus and a racket because someone's being dragged through the temple. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery who'd been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? Good morning, can I have my coffee and donut? It's almost like this was planned. Strategically planned. But again, a lot of questions, not a whole lot of answers. Moving on. Okay, The scene here would not be a good one. Let's start right there. A woman caught in the act of adultery, whatever men could do to embarrass her all the more, they would do. So she's not in a good way standing in front of this crowd of people. I leave that for you. In all of her shame, in all of her embarrassment, she would be standing in front of these people. I leave that with you to figure out what that might mean. But it is not good. The quietness of the morning in the temple and the teaching of Jesus all of a sudden is shattered and broken. Because somebody needs to prove a point. But again, so many questions to ask. What was he teaching? What was the motivation? What was, the, what was driving? How did they catch her? What were they doing? I mean, were they out and about on the prowl for this kind of stuff? Where was the guy? 
I mean, the act of adultery, I'm not a bright guy, but it usually takes two people, doesn't it? Okay, so we'll leave that alone. You got to, now, the other question is, where's her husband in this whole thing? Where's her husband? Not just the guy, but where's her husband? Was he complicit with this? Did he go find the scribes and the Pharisees and say, hey, I've got a way in which you can bait Jesus? We can use my wife. Was he part of the crowd even, perhaps, holding onto a stone, figuring out a legal way in which he could get vengeance upon his wife? See, all of these things pop into my head as I read this little story. All of them unanswered. Every one of them are unanswered. A lot of chaos going on. If we aren't careful to sort it out, it seems like a pretty cut and dry case, doesn't it? Where's the gentleness in this? We'll get there. See, John lets us know that this whole scene is just a ruse in order to test Jesus and set him up. They said this to him in verse 6 to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. It's the only reason why it's here. You see, this nameless woman, this poor woman does not even have a name. This woman. Somebody said that to my wife, knowing her name, we would probably have a come to Jesus moment. She has a name. But we see here this woman, not even named. Not even named. She's nothing more than a pawn being used in a power play in a game in order that these temple authorities can get their way and get rid of this renegade preacher from the north who seems to be leading people in a way that they don't like. Here we are in the middle of the temple with Jesus teaching And all of those who ought to know better, who ought to not be doing these things, have taken an image bearer of the creator of the universe and they are using her as a tool to achieve their own arrogant ends. It's an ugly story. She's really nothing more than a means to an end. And that end is nothing more than to trick Jesus. But here's where it gets even weirder for me because you can actually see the grace of God and the restraint of Jesus in the midst of this story because the devaluing of an image bearer is probably one of the things that grieves the heart of God more than anything. But the devaluing of an image bearer for the purpose of self-promotion, for self-gain, or for power is just sin. It's sin. It's the problem we have with this world. It's the problem we have with this world. And it is one that these people, it is very clear, care very little at all about as they follow the absolute letter of the law. The law says this. Therefore, we do. It's unflexible. Raymond Brown, a, a Catholic commentator, Uh, Very good, actually, especially on, on John. This is what he says on this particular issue in his commentary. He says that he, Jesus, is dealing here with zealots who have taken themselves the indignant enforcement of the law. And he has every right to demand that their case be thoroughly lawful and their motives be honest. That's the heart of the law. They are not interested in the purpose of the law for the spiritual state of the woman is not even in question. You see, the purpose of the law was to help us to grow spiritually. They don't care about that. 
That's not even a question. Jesus knows that they are using her as a pawn to entrap him. And that's huge. Because at this moment in time, Jesus has every right to just stand up and let him have it. Just go Matthew 23 on him. You know, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you bunch of parasites and fools. But he doesn't. He doesn't do that. He just quietly starts to doodle in the sand, which seems to be a rabbit hole and another distraction and a question for this text that we shouldn't worry about. You you can do that. Take your time to figure out what that was, but it ain't a plain thing, therefore it ain't a main thing. You know, he was probably writing something in the sand. We can move on from there. Trying to figure that out, we missed the whole point. The point is, is he's not being led down the road of chaos. He's, he's taking control of this situation. You see, their actions and their words absolutely contrast with the meekness of this Jesus. His power is absolutely restrained. But the meekness of this little carpenter, the gentleness of Jesus, in fact, is seen here so very clearly. He's looking past the chaos and he's dealing with this completely unnamed lady and a bunch of other people who need to understand what they're really doing. You see, he could have done anything he wished to these men and he didn't. He didn't. There they are standing in front of him. You know the law. What do you think we ought to do? You know the law. What are your thoughts? That's loaded. That's the setup question in the whole thing, if you don't know that. In this passage, that's the bait. Because the switch in the bait and switch is this. If he says, let her go, they win. Because he then becomes this liberal, renegade, rogue rabbi who nobody should listen to because he doesn't obey the law. So his whole testimony can be shot down because he's not you know, taking the law seriously. But here's the deal. If he looks at them and says, go ahead, stoner as the law says... The Romans are going to arrest him because at that particular moment in time, the people of Israel didn't have the right to exact capital punishment. So if he gives the order to go ahead and stone her, he's signing her death sentence, which violates Roman law. He gets arrested, done deal, they're done with him. They don't care how. They don't care if she dies, if she doesn't die, just so long as Jesus is gone. Anybody frustrated yet with how these people are handling this poor woman? Don't think we've invented anything in our culture. Every human being has value. Every human being has value. If you think for a minute that somebody doesn't have value for whatever reason, you probably should check your spirit before the throne of grace. Every human being has value. And I emphasize that very deeply because in the goodness and the gentleness of God, we live in a country right now where a premium is put on human life based upon who you are, where you come from, the color of your skin, and all of those things. We must be very careful. Every human being has value. There's no grace in the law. There's no grace in the law. None whatsoever. We see that in verse 5. 
The law says stoner. What do you tell us? It's pretty cut and dry. Three points and a prayer. Let's push her over the edge and we'll be done with it. There's no grace there. But we are not under law. We are not under law. You see, these men were right, as usual. Pharisees were always right. Pharisees actually are always right. The problem with the Pharisees always being right is they're always wrong at the same time they're right. That's the problem. And that's a fact. You see, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Yes, she should be stoned. But Jesus does something that we must never forget. And if you learn nothing from today, take this away as a tool to put in your spiritual disciplines in your quiet time. Something that we must never forget. He turns them in on themselves. He makes them think this through. Puts the brakes on and says, wait a minute, boys, think this through. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. How many of you are free from sin? That, 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 that really thins the herd out a little bit, doesn't it? Remember, every single sin is an inside job. Every sin is an inside job. Read this morning on my timeline that Jesus knows my heart. He knows all of our hearts. And that, at the same time, brings me a great deal of comfort, and it frightens the daylights out of me. You know why? Because I know my heart. Every sin is an inside job. The challenge here is you are very quick to condemn her in order to get to me. And that may very well be the letter of the law, but what about the heart of the law? What about the fact that this is a human being here? So you see the undercurrent of the gentleness of Jesus trying to grow these people to a place where they can recognize that they're not walking the way that they are telling everybody else to walk. You see, God hates sin, but loves the sinner. I'll argue that with everybody who says that's not true. No, God hates the sinner as much as he hates sin. You're wrong. He hates sin, but he passionately loves the sinner. And we see that in this story with the grace and the gentleness and the goodness of Jesus, not just letting these guys have it. He's trying to open them up within their own assumptions so that they can think this through for a minute. This is a human being you're using to play a game to get at me. Hey, if you're without sin, go ahead, buddy. Pick up a stone. I double dog dare you. Wind it up and throw it as hard as you can. What do we see here? (laughs) The chaos doesn't ensue, does it? Verse 9, but when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Boy, talk about breaking up a party. He hasn't raised his voice. He hasn't said an unkind word. He hasn't been mean. He hasn't condemned them. He simply, in the quietness of who he is, has said one thing. If you have never sinned in your life, feel free to pick up a stone. You see, that's the heart of the law, not the letter of the law. The law reminds us that we are sinners, but that God is a good God and that he loves us. You see, 
we have to be careful to watch this too as we grow and we look at this because who are the first ones to leave? It's the geezers, the old guys. The young ones are there, you know, pretty cocky. They're the last ones to leave. Why? Arrogance. It's just arrogance. It's a lack of life experience and it's a lack of wisdom. Uh, I, I can tell you, and I can probably attest for every guy my age and older, I was a lot smarter at 20 than I am now. I knew everything at 20. I forget why I go in the kitchen most mornings. But you see, they don't understand. It's the arrogance, the lack of life experience and wisdom to know that they are actually part of the problem as much as they can be a part of the solution. See, let's not always look for problems and what's wrong. But you see, they can actually be a part of the solution. Right now, they're a part of the problem. And I want to remind you what I said last week for the young people. With age comes wisdom. With age comes wisdom. That's not an insult. That's not being mean. That is a fact of life. If you are young, with age comes wisdom. And that wisdom is most often seen and grown in self-reflection, in patience, and in seeking advice and finding a mentor. If you are young and you think you know everything, give it time. You will learn you don't. I am saying to you, seek wisdom. Be self-reflective. Be patient. Every one of us should practice this, but when you are young most especially. You see, the old guys who had way more of the life journey behind them than they did in front of them bailed real quick. They knew this was going to go sideways quicker than they wanted it to. Stones got dropped, they lifted up their robes, and they were out of there. Why? Because when Jesus forced them to look at themselves first, they actually did so. And what they saw was a realization that they were no better and no worse than this woman. And in the goodness and the gentleness of Jesus, they realized that. It was in that that grace was extended to them also. Were they condemned? No, I don't see it. They had a lesson to learn and they learned that lesson in how Jesus handled his anger. Because in his anger at their abuse of another human being, he properly used the law by challenging them to take their own spiritual temperature before God. Back to Brown again. I mean, think about this. The purpose of the law was for the spiritual state of the woman to be brought back to where it was belonging. That's what Jesus is trying to do here. He's getting everyone's spiritual state where it belongs, operating in what we would know to be the fruit of the Spirit, not the letter of the law. So Jesus is doing what Brown says he ought to do, the purpose of the law for the spiritual state of them all, not just the woman, but for them all. He properly used the law. He challenged them as we ought to be challenged before we challenge anybody else to take our own spiritual temperature before God. Are we doing that? Before we get all high and mighty and hot and bothered at others around us, and I know I do that. Perhaps you don't, but I do. Are we taking our own spiritual temperature before the Lord? Because in the words of Alistair Begg, 
far too often I see my own sins most clearly in others. And that's not a good way to be. It's kind of peculiar, though, how Jesus is acting, isn't it? Such a wrathful and vengeful God operating in the way he does with justice and mercy being seen here. It's it's quite interesting, I think. Everyone is convinced in their hearts and really challenged to think differently at this point. And that's really the whole point to what Jesus is trying to do for all of us, to get us to think differently, to be conformed to the likeness of his son. You see, the fruit of gentleness is seen in how Jesus responds and how he doesn't respond. He doesn't treat them as the law demands, as they want him to do for her. The psalmist tells us that God does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. That's Psalm 103 and verse 10. David, the psalmist, understands this more clearly than anybody. He treats us with grace and mercy. That's how God treats us. The grace of God, then, in the midst of all of this, is him treating us in a way that we don't actually deserve. But he treats us that way anyway. And the mercy of God is seen in the midst of all of this, is that God himself chooses not to treat us the way in which we actually deserve. And I think that that's interesting to me, and I think it's a good thing for us to learn, that God's mercy is him not treating me the way I deserve to be treated. And then when his grace is poured out, that is giving me something I don't deserve, but he gives it to me free of charge. And then says, why don't you head off into the world and why don't you do that for others? It's unmerited favor. I looked upon you and I saw my child broken, lost, and sinful. And I said, come home, my dear child, come home to me. You see, in all of our effort to make sure that we are doing things right, in all of our effort to make God happy in the, in the process with all of our actions and our deeds, we forget that God has moved far beyond that. In fact, I'm not sure God was ever there. And what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is that in the goodness of God and in the gentleness of Jesus that we see in this story, our salvation is given to us free of charge. If we would just examine ourselves and realize that we are in deep need of a Savior that we are actually part of the problem and that our salvation is not performance-based and at the same time, it's not without cost. Nothing's free. My salvation costs Jesus absolutely everything. And it ought to cost me as well. I don't earn it. But when I come to Jesus, the Bible tells me that I am to die to myself and to live for Jesus. That's what we're called to do. Jesus doesn't leave her standing in the midst with nothing else to say or do. What what, what does he do? Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. He doesn't abandon her. See, that's the challenge, really, isn't it? Let's think this through. That's the challenge. Go. Live rightly. Honor God in what it is you're doing. Use the gifts that he's given you. Show the world what it means to be a follower of Jesus with all of your barnacles and your brokenness and all of that. How we live our lives ought to be a reflection of what God is doing in us. That's the working out of our salvation with fear and trembling. 
What is he doing in us? Let's work it out so the world can see it. And like a good father, he is gentle, he's loving, he's patient, and yet he's firm. But he's firm in the correct way. He always disciplines how? Towards repentance. Towards repentance. That's what's going on here. In gentleness and in goodness, he's disciplining towards repentance. Not in the breaking of one's spirit. That's not what he does. That's not what we should be doing. The goal isn't to break a spirit and break a value and make someone feel bad so that they say sorry. That's not repentance. That's performance-based and behavior modification is what that is. That's not what God's after. You see, the justice of God demands discipline, but that discipline is always in love and is always intended to move us forward in being conformed to the likeness of his son, Jesus. And that's what's going on here. We, we were in Hebrews 12 last week, and I know I'm running out of time, but it is what it is. I'm going to start in verse 3 in Hebrews 12. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? We aren't orphans. If you're in Christ, you're a son. You're a daughter of the king. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. For it is for discipline that, he, that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? How are we growing in this? Why am I even talking about this? Well, let's think on this for a minute. How are we receiving this? If you have children, have you ever felt good once in your life about disciplining your kids? Think that through. No. I don't suspect any of us do. So we give and we do only what is absolutely necessary to conform our children to what it is we need them to be and to do. Correct? At least that's what I hope. We don't discipline because we enjoy it. We do it because it's necessary and we do it with gentleness, firmness, love, kindness. So gentleness then in discipline especially is deeply required and it's needed always. Always. Not just with our kids, but with all to whom God puts in our life. It's important fruit. We have no idea, no idea how rough of a road somebody has traveled or they are still traveling. Unless you have come alongside somebody and walked in their shoes for a little while and broken bread with them and had a conversation with them, we don't know how rough a road they have traveled or are still traveling. But God has put them in your life in order to grow a relationship of trust, friendship, of mentoring. You see, that is Christian community at the core. Open, trusting, vulnerable, risky. It's risky. We have to take that chance. No growth happens without these things. No growth at all happens without these things. Christian community has to be open. It has to be trusting. It has to be vulnerable. And it is risky. But in order to grow, the fruit of the Spirit is absolutely essential. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and now we have gentleness. All of them are necessary. Every single one of them are necessary. 
Openness and trust will never happen without people having gentle spirits as we see Jesus having here in this story. None of us. None of us. I could have the worship team come. I want to leave you with this. And, and I think it's important that we really, we really settle on this as we prepare to close. The fruit of the Spirit, as I said, must become who we are, not just what we do. Who we are, not just what we do. Because the fruit, as near as I can figure, is a matter of the heart. It's a heart living. We can recognize with our brains that this is how we're supposed to think and act. But the fruit is actually a matter of the heart. It's it's living out the lifestyle that Jesus tells us, that cruciformed life. We know we ought to be a certain way because of what Jesus has done for us. But we also must recognize that that is not always our natural attitude. It's not our natural attitude. So my challenge to you is to understand that justice has its place. But it has also found its fulfillment in Jesus. So we become bound to the law of Christ. Which manifests itself in our life in and through the fruit of the Spirit. In each and every situation we find ourselves in. Stay above the chaos. Understand the backstory. Stay above the chaos. We have a lot of chaos. Understand the backstory. Let's stand. Father, in the few minutes that we have left, as we sing this last song, and if I could have the prayer partners just those who are willing to pray, please come up and take your place. For those of you who are visiting here, if you are in need of prayer, we have people here in the front that are willing to pray with you and take the time to just lift you up before the Lord. I want to encourage you, if you need prayer today, uh, any of you, if you need encouragement, you just need somebody to just pray with you. I ask as we sing this last song that you would step out and do that. Father, as we lift our voices to you, settle our hearts before your throne. Help us to understand and see the gentleness of our Savior King. That in the most violent act that could ever be done against a human being, he said not a word, but he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. He said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And then he walked out of the tomb. Teach our hearts to just live in a way that brings glory to your name, Lord, in everything. Help us to allow ourselves and others grace in everything we do, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.